Welcome to Deep Dive MKE, a podcast that explores how City on a Hill is transforming communities and families worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into conversations with individuals who understand the journey out of generational poverty and its trauma. I'm your host, Art Serna. Let's dive deep. I'm excited and honored to be on this segment of the podcast with Bishop Walter Harvey, who has now come on as the president and board chair for City on a Hill. Bishop, we admire you. We've known about your journey and we heard you speak. I'm glad that we have this moment to dive deep with you about your journey, but also how you think about what you've learned about community transformation. As a son of Milwaukee, I want to learn from those that have walked this journey, uh, not being native to Milwaukee and Wisconsin. So it is a really delight for me to be in this place with you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Art. It's, it's an honor for me to be here with you as well. I have followed your journey somewhat from a distance, but not too distantly, as you and Karen have been called here to the city and so admire your leadership. And I'm just really overjoyed and in awe that God has connected us in this season for such a time as this. All right. Well, let's dive in. All right. So I would ask you this question. I think I heard you say this one time, using the concept of giants. Mm -hmm. So as you think about your journey as a son of the city, and this is a loaded question, like there's so much you could spend the entire time in this, but what have been some of the giants you've had to overcome and seeing the community have to grapple with as you help me understand better Mm -hmm. Milwaukee, from your perspective? Great question. Well, first of all, we always want to be on God's side. And when I read scripture, God always seems to be on the side of the underdog, the least, the last, the lost, the poor, the nation of Israel. I didn't choose you because you were more in number, because you were mightier. If I start taking notes, like, (laughs) forgive me. This is good. Keep going. So I want to be on the Lord's side. And God is on the side of the humble, right? He gives us grace to the humble and resist the proud. So when we talk about giants, naturally I think about David and Goliath, and David just seemingly a runt in the eyes of Goliath, but he recognizes that his power is not in the sword or the spear, it's certainly not in Saul's armor or the identity of being a king, but his power is in his intimate relationship with the Lord. Cultivated behind the scenes, right? In the darkness of worship and prayer and faithful stewardship where nobody's looking. And he draws his strength from that. He knows the Lord intimately and relationally. And so I see myself as a David. I see myself as an underdog, even though I'm a son of the city. I think we all are at our best when we walk in humility and grace. And my mother, she taught me this great lesson. She's gone home to be with the Lord in 2012. She says, son, be who you are because everybody else is taken. And so humility is simply just being who God made you. It's not thinking more highly of yourself, not thinking less of yourself. It's just being who you are. And so when it comes to bringing our time, talent, and treasure to the table as a weapon in the hand of the Lord, we are those stones, like the five stones that David took. And I think that there are, I've heard Rick Warren share about his peace plan. And he talks about five global Goliaths that defy nations, particularly, and he's doing a lot of work in Africa and countries that are impoverished. My calling is to Milwaukee. I'm a son of the city. I've been here 63 years. I try to escape, but God has me under arrest here. This is where I'm planted, not buried. And so the five 
Goliaths that I think that I know that are defying people in this city, particularly people of color and people with who have been trapped in cycles of poverty, which is what City on a Hill is called to break. The first giant is one of poverty, and economics is the stone that brings that down. And so we need to be not just so heavenly minded, we're no earth, earthly good. We need to be thinking about business creation and raising up and releasing youth and young adult entrepreneurs and supporting businesses that are in our neighborhood and praying for the peace of that city, the shalom, the flourishing, the well-being, economically creating these economic ecosystems that will def- that will destroy that giant of poverty. The second one is sickness and disease. And the stone is health that will bring that giant down. And Sydney on the Hill has been so pivotal in that for so many years with its health clinic. And the third one is ignorance. And the stone of education will bring that one down. And I'm not just talking about biblical education. That has its place. But the majority of positions of influence are not in ministry. They're in the marketplace. They're in municipality. And a Bible degree won't get you into those places, mm. right? You need education in every elementary, middle school, high school, secondary, and sometimes jurisdiction or PhD level. And we need to be raising up a generation that is competent to stand, like David and the three Hebrew boys who have mm. a spirit of excellence and they're found to be 10 times better. A fourth giant is, of course, spiritual emptiness. People's souls need to be saved. And the church has been excellent and somewhat excellent in that, primarily because we've played a guitar with one string that has been the Sunday morning string. Mm. And we want people to come into the building of the church, the small C church. And of course, that deals with the spiritual emptiness. But uh, this is another sermon, another podcast for another wow, day. I was going to say Masterclass 1, 2, 3. <laughs> okay, I was say, yeah. But the church wow. has to be unleashed. The big C mm. church has to be unleashed mm. from the small C church to deal with that spiritual emptiness. And then the last giant is the hardest one of all. It's not the spiritual one, but it's ego. It's getting wow. me out of the way, right? The hardest person to lead is me. And uh, and so leadership development and that humility that I talked about at the beginning is the one that will get me out of the way so that God will empower me in all of these other spheres of influence. Wow. Well, we'll see how much we can do each of those stones. But the last one, as you talk about ego and getting out of the way, I think it's important how us as leaders seek to do change or bring change about. And I've heard you talk about the moment that you realized what type of leader you would be in terms of the community in Sherman Park. Yes. Do you say a little bit about, about that moment yeah. and what it did for you and maybe re- changing your heart set and how you were approaching change that yeah. brings you to this moment today of what you're seeking to do? Yeah. I'm so grateful that the Lord used pain to awaken me and to bring me out of this coma of identity because my my identity was this pastor of people who are coming into the building and I needed to come outside the building and it was only the tragic shooting death of a young African American male that brought a personal pain to that family that brought pain to our neighborhood and to our community Sherman Park that led to the pain being manifested in frustration and nights of violence and unrest and buildings being burned and police on one side and a crowd of people on the other side, that as a leader, I had an option. I could lead, follow, or get out of the way. Getting out of the way would mean I'm just going to focus on my four and no more. We're not going out there. We're going to just wait until the dust clears, and we're going to open up our doors on Sunday and do what we have continued to do. And 
I was awakened and literally compelled to step into the the uncomfortable place and step out of my comfort zone. And it was there that I got a new identity, a real identity. And that is that I'm not just called to pastor the people who are coming, but I'm called to care for the whole city mm. and to see the city as my congregation. And so many times preachers are, they ask each other the question, how many are you running, Doc? First of all, Doc means, you know, you're a preacher and we're giving you an honorary spiritual degree. And how many are you running means how many people are coming to your church. And that's the identity trap. And God doesn't see a building. He sees a city. Jesus wept twice in scripture. He wept over a person and he wept over a place. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And so that night and those nights, I began to weep for my city. Literally waking up in the middle of the night, crying for my city. And it was the first time. I mean, I've cried because the worship set was bad. I've cried because the pipe bursted in the basement of the church. I yeah. cried because we didn't meet offering goals. But when I began weeping for my city, that's when God began to transfer my heart for people. He began really to give me his heart. And I think that's the crux of leadership. Not just how many are coming, but how many am I holding up? It's inverting that pyramid of leadership where I'm literally called to care for a million people in greater Milwaukee, right? Not just in 53216 or the radius around my church, but in the 97 neighborhoods that are in greater Milwaukee. Say more about the coma of identity. When you think about the city and our ability or inability to respond to the burden of God, to say intercede, stand in the gap. Coma of identity, why does it happen? Hmm. Why do we stay yeah. there? What prevents us from taking that step to like shake ourselves out of that? Wow, it's a great question. It's a I could deal with it theologically and also practically. Let me deal with it theologically first. Theologically, Ephesians chapter four tells us that God gave gifts of leadership to the church: apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. I think the fivefold offices Jesus walked in all five of those. But I think the tragedy of the church is that we've taken on this identity of one primarily as the pastor. There's some churches that will allow an evangelist or a teacher occasionally, but most churches are nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, as well as the 501c3 nonprofit, yeah. and certainly many are non-apostolic. But all of them together manifest the character, the nature, the leadership of Jesus Christ. And so because we have insulated ourselves with this office and title of a pastor, that's become an identity. And it's become one that we've become very protective of. The reason I know that is when I shared with many pastors that three years ago, I not resigned, not retired, but repositioned out of the lead pastor role of my church so that I could really become a pastor of the city and a pastor of cities in the nation. They're like, man, you crazy. You left a church of a thousand people. You know, you left all of the, yeah, yeah, the stability. That's not my identity. And so that's the theological disruption that has to happen in the hearts and minds of spiritual leaders. But practically, going back to the Sherman Park unrest, April 13, 2016, a Saturday afternoon, it's dark at night. There's potential for more unrest to happen on the Sunday and the days to come. And I'm out there in the midst of the crowd, and one young man who's a leader of the, the side against the police says, hey, aren't you the pastor? up the street, identity. They knew me, but I didn't know them. I didn't know my own community. 
my identity was so wrapped up as the pastor of the people who come to the bell. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm him. He said, yeah, I, we know who you are. We drive past your church on Sunday and we see the parking lot full. And then Sunday afternoon, when we drive or walk by again, it's empty. And he has to question, where the hell has the church been? Identity. And so identity is not who's coming. It's not how many are you running. Identity is, are you with us? And so that, to me, even before I repositioned in 2020 out of the lead pastor role, was the birth within me of a new identity and the birth of what we've now called the with movement which has the vision of transforming every community's pain point through a disciple-making movement, using business as a tool of justice, coming alongside of pastors and stakeholders right where they live, work, and play, and transforming those places from the inside out. Wow. Bishop, when you think about the economic stone in the giant as you weep over a city, and you think about the with movement, do you think that believers need permission or feel like they need permission? to feel like that's a valuable, justifiable ministry to take. I need to start a business, give my full time. I have no more time to go this other thing mm-hmm. because I am, feel called to do this, create jobs, create economic impact. Can you say more about yeah. that, that shift within the structure, but to also to empower believers who might feel I've never felt validated Mm -hmm. by my leader or leaders. Say more about that. That question almost brings me to tears because it breaks my heart that the priesthood of believers would have to even ask, feel that they have to ask for permission to do something other than usher, watch over cars, burp babies, or clean the bathroom of the church on Sunday. Because again, identity we've made the coming, the gathering, the end of the building, the end-all, be-all. And therefore, we've negated and stripped of validity and power and priesthood what happens outside the walls of the church. And that's what makes me weep, because Matthew 16, Jesus says, in the darkest place of the earth, as he takes his disciples to this Caesarea Philippi, a place where idol worship and human sacrifice and child sacrifice and those believe that the entrance of this cave led to Hades, so like they called it the gates of hell. He leads his disciples there and says, upon this rock, this dark place, I build my ecclesia, not my church, my ecclesia, a gathering of people from municipality, marketplace, ministry, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, male and female, degreed and non-degreed, my people who have been called out of darkness to rule where they live, work, and play. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And now I'm not only confirming, Peter, what you said, that flesh and blood didn't give you this revelation, but I'm now commissioning you all, common, ordinary people who were not selected by the religious rabbis to to follow them, but were selected by a heavenly rabbi to say, I believe you can do what I do. Fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and just common, ordinary men. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And so... We have to reaffirm the priesthood of the believer and let them know that you have greater impact Monday through Saturday than you ever will on Sunday. And so the two hours on Sunday has to be shifted around. And I believe the mentality of the fivefold minister should be, we're equipping you on Sunday with Monday in mind. 
so we can create these stones, these ecosystems of justice and righteousness and truth, which the foundation of God's throne is established on. Bishop, say more about in cultural narrative today as we engage on just simple word justice and how you understand it from a biblical lens. And then how you would, what would you say to a generation of young people that are maybe crying, who are in the faith, who are seeking, like, what is, what does God say about justice? Yeah. And how can I see it happen in neighborhoods? You say a little bit more. I said a lot there and I can clarify as you go into it, but just help us define justice from your experience. Yeah. Justice is God's idea, first of all. It's not the Black Lives Matters movement and organization does not have the market on justice. God is the author of justice, right? And justice is the cousin of reconciliation. It's reconciling all things that are right and that are broken back to the way they once were. So justice begins with God. The Hebrews, while they were in Egypt, and when they left the Egypt in their exodus, God gave them laws and commands that included justice. How do you treat the stranger? How do you treat the foreigner? How do you treat the poor, right? All of those things were his foundation of his throne is on truth and justice. So justice streams from God's throne. And I think that theologically, historically through the years, my mind goes, I'm a child of the 60s, born in 1960, right here in Milwaukee. And so I can think back to the demonstrations of justice in the civil rights movement. Right. In the history books, we read about the justice of the abolitionists, right? Who were willing to sacrifice and risk all and to be hated and to be persecuted because they were standing up not for themselves, but for justice for enslaved people. And then the civil rights movement, another move of justice. So I think there have been these waves where the church has gotten on the track of justice, but then we somehow get off or we pull the car in the station and we don't drive it anymore. And I think we have, we hit a space in our history where began where we began listening to political pundits and to the voices around us that were loud and that were pulling money strings and pulling our eagle strings rather than listening to the voice of the spirit to stay on that track of justice and now we have given people a choice are you going to be for this side of justice or for that side well god's not on either a donkey or an elephant side he's the lamb right yeah. He's not either or, he's and and both. And so justice should not be a choice. Justice is from the womb to the tomb. And I think our younger generation, to your question, understands that. And they're confused and they're puzzled and they are despaired and losing hope in the gospel and in the people of God because we're not demonstrating that justice. We have this allegiance to the fringes where God's like, hey, I'm in the fringes and in the middle. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And so we have to, once again, we have to risk being with Jesus, being isolated, being alone, being being hated, being persecuted, being unfunded or unliked. And I'll close with this, that justice and mercy were on a stroll on the side of a riverbank one day, and they both hear this splash in the water, and they both look and they see this man who is can't swim. He's frantically trying to breathe and stay above the water. Mercy quickly dives into the water, swims to him, pulls the man ashore and says, hey, Justice, come help me get him out. He Justice comes and help and they both pull him to the shore. 
and Mercy begins to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and the man is he's slowly getting his life back in, and when they hear another splash, and it's another man who's in the water, same thing, he's drowning, and Mercy leaves the one on the shore and jumps back in the water, swims to him, pulls him out of the water, and says, hey, uh, uh, Justice, come and help me, but he doesn't see Justice coming. Justice is running in the other direction. And he says, hey, where are you going? I need your help. He's saying, I'm going upstream t- to see who's throwing these people in the river. See, that's what justice is. It's not just giving people a fish, but let me go upstream to find out why they need a fish in the first place. Let me find out you know, who's killing the fish. Let me find out why they don't have access to, to, their, own, to own their own pond. Yeah. And so justice is not just, it's not just one issue. It's not just a fringe issue, but it's everything in between. That's beautiful. I, we've been thinking about the reinvention of City on a Hill, not because there was any, anything wrong with where we've been, but we've been challenged by the stories very similar to your Sherman Park experience to see coming out of the pandemic, being so proximate to people's journey and trauma and trial and despondency. And in that, we've understood that the scale of the problem requires a different lens and a different approach, almost giving ourselves permission to dream in a different way, receive from heaven. And so we they are bigger, more audacious goals. We believe that we've allowed ourselves to feel like at our, at our grasp. So I just want to thank you for helping even in sharing that story. We've operated in mercy, and we feel the challenge of God to say, would you allow to put on the lens of justice? And then allow you to create, we're not leaving mercy, but we're allowing other ideas to come to the surface, to ideate, to dream, to perceive new models, to go out into the community in a different way and have different offerings. Because that's what we're hearing from young people. Mercy is amazing. It's not enough, given the crisis we're seeing in our families. I want to give you the last word. It, when you think about restoring hope, which City on a Hill cares about, in the broader Milwaukee, as leaders like you have been awakened to a new way to lead and the legacy you want to leave in the city, what gives you hope about what is going to be possible in the next 10, 20, 30 years? I'm so glad you asked that question, Art. And my last word is this. I have hope when I see your leadership and not just yours. I'm hopeful when I see the next generation, the younger generation leaders. I'm a boomer, a boomer, born in 1960. What gives me hope is seeing this next generation of leaders who are firmly holding to the inerrancy and, the, and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, and are not afraid to also hold on to compassion for anybody from whatever background or walk of life they have chosen or, or whatever struggles they have come through restoring hope is happening. And the reason that I'm signing up again, put me in coach for City on the Hill, is because I believe that there is now an Esther mandate upon City on the Hill for such a time as this, for this city and for other cities. And God is doing something, has always been doing something in our city, but our eyes are being opened like Elisha's servant to see that and to join him in that. The word perichoresis is descriptive of the divine dance of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, peri, around, charesis, dance. 
that there is this unity of dance, God simply is saying, hey, come and join me in this dance. It's in the dark and the dangerous places that God is doing a dance of hope, and I'm with him. So lead me, God. I'm there. Oh, gosh. Bishop Harvey, thank you for pulling us to raise our head, come a little higher, and taking a dive with me. God Glad bless to you. be here. Thank you. Thank you, Art. Awesome. Thanks for your time and attention. Through the inspiring stories of courage, wisdom, generosity, and joy, we demonstrate how City on a Hill and our network is advancing justice and working towards a world free from poverty. This work highlights the cultural pillars of City on a Hill, loving, listening, learning, and leading. We can't do what we do without you. Remember to join the email list to stay in the loop on the important work City on a Hill is doing in your community. Till our next dive, stay courageous.